0: Snow settles like a burial shroud, bringing peace at last to the weary world. All is calm. All is dark. Light one last candle. Let smoke and shadow conjure spirits of Christmas past and future. These are their tales. This is the sixth Demon Bag Holiday Special. Blacker Than Coal by Jeff C. Carter. The haggard elf hobbled into Santa's office, struggling with a tower of scrolls. More names for the naughty list, she gasped. Curled parchment littered the furniture, jutted from groaning filing cabinets, and overflowed from a row of trash cans. Santa did not take his glacier blue eyes from the TV screen. Fox News was presenting its annual coverage of the war on Christmas. Of course they're naughty, Santa growled. They never get punished. They can be entitled little snots all year long and still get what they want from the Amazon.com. He smacked his pipe against his desk to knock loose a plug of burnt tobacco. Back in my day, children knew they'd better be good for goodness sake. When Santa Claus came to town, he didn't come alone. My companion, Belsnickel, would beat naughty children with a switch. La Père Foutarde would cut a liar's tongue out, and Frau Perkta would slit their bellies open and stuff them with straw. Don't even get me started on Han's trap. Ha ha ha! The bestial monster, Krampus, roared with laughter until his tongue dangled down his furred belly and slapped against his belt of iron chains. Kids today would really be shook by some bitch named Hans. Santa began refilling his pipe. I suppose you're right, Krampus. Not all of my old world enforcers would fit this modern era. Thankfully, we have you in charge of the situation. Krampus took a pull from his vape rig. Totes. Well, I'm meeting my agent for a juice. Later, Brosif. He rolled off on his hoverboard scooter blowing a trail of peppermint mocha vapor. Useless ingrate, Santa hissed. Can't he see that he's been co-opted by the liberal media? He's not scaring anyone. He's become a plush toy. Another part of this Coca-Cola polar bear bullshit. Santa dashed a pile of scrolls from his desk. The elf hefted the lid of an old steamer trunk up and dragged out a small, child-sized dummy. I guess. Now would be a good time to start the auditions. Santa put on his bifocals and opened a folder containing a stack of headshots and resumes. Very well. Send them in. A woman in a tight green top and bicycle shorts padded into the office on bare feet. She was covered in rippling muscles and tattoos, save for a red ribbon around her neck. Santa cleared his throat. Merry Christmas, Miss... She pulled out a black mouth guard. My name is Joy Jitsu. Hmm, and what are your qualifications? She cracked the child dummy in the face with a lightning jab, flipped it over her shoulder, and slammed it to the floor. That's just the setup. She mounted the fake child's chest and wailed on its head. After a good grounded pound, I finished them like this. She slipped off her ribbon and wrapped it around the dummy's neck strangling until the veins throbbed along her forearms thank you santa murmured we'll be in touch Jitsu thrust her arms up in victory and stalked out of the room santa leaned down to the elf do we have anyone dressed more seasonally appropriate the next candidate galloped through the door he was dressed head to toe in a brown fursuit topped by a black leather bondage hood and long phallic antlers he unzipped his mouth. My name is Payne Deer, he said, eagerly pawing the small dummy. And when I find a naughty little boy, next, Santa shouted, glaring at the elf. Bring me someone more traditional. A large orange sphere waddled in, dangling fruits and marshmallows from its skin on wooden skewers. Its flaming helmet, carved from a giant candle, spilled tears of wax down the weirdo's face. It hissed. The Cris-tingler is here. Santa stared at the bizarre contender. The flaming orange looked to the elf for recognition. I stab children and turn them into Christingles. A Christingle is an orange with a candle in it. I know what a Christingle is, Santa said, but no one else does. Next, a man in a black cow leapt inside and landed in a superhero pose. Santa sighed name he looked up dramatically revealing his black domino mask in a gravely voice he said they call me black friday that was three weeks oh never mind do your thing the costume figure drew two onyx credit cards from his belt and slashed into the dummy i'm taking half off please send the next person in on your way out santa crossed his name off the list the rest were no better Frostbiter, Mistletoes, The Grim Wreather, Tinselectomy, Captain Clegnog, Candy Cane, spelled C A I N Otannen Figgy Blooding, Shark the Herald, The Advent Murder, Jingle Belch, Holocaust, Snow Manson, Garish Thugs, the lot of them, lacking all manner of character and style. He turned on Fox News and pondered his problems. The grids of angry talking heads changed from one segment to the next, but the digital red, white, and blue flag undulating behind them remained a constant presence. An idea began to stir. One might frighten a child with cheap gimmicks, but gimmicks go out of style. The role of enforcer required an icon, something timeless and mythological. A commercial for the Midnight Movie caught his eye. A serial killer in a Santa costume, perched on a snowy rooftop, clutching a bloody red axe. Santa lit his pipe and puffed. A smile twisted the corners of his mouth, spilling smoke through the curls of his beard and mustache. Let Jeff Bezos deliver the presents this year. Santa would deliver the punishment. Visions of cruelty danced in his head. Naughty children lodged in chimneys, trampled by reindeer, or thrown shrieking from the back of his airborne sleigh. They wanted a war on Christmas. Santa would give it to them.
1: Those are some very wildly creative auditioner names.
0: Yeah, those are, they're, 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 they all want to be Santa's enforcers.
1: Right, right, right. New, new Krampuses. I applaud you for that alone. Because Holly... Holly Cost. cost made me laugh.
2: All of them better than Black Peter
0: pete <laughs> come on.
1: Oh, uh, you clearly have such affection for Co Santas, Side I, Santas.
0: I do. I love Christmas mythology more every year. And uh have you guys ever heard of Chris Tingles before?
1: No, sure
0: haven't. I did
2: actually. The orange?
0: Yeah. So, uh a Chris Tingle was something they invented in England like recently, in the past few decades.
2: Yeah.
0: Uh because they wanted something not so secular. And so they would carve a hole in an orange and put a candle in it. I like it already. And the candle was like Jesus. Mm-hmm. And then they would use wooden skewers to stick uh, um, candy and stuff to the outside. It's very strange. It's really weird looking. <laughs> well,
1: I, I always love the idea that an orange was like... An awesome Christmas gift, <laughs> yeah. like back in the days when you couldn't just get an orange.
0: Yeah, well, yeah. You know, scur- scurvy was real. Uh-huh.
1: So, though I am severely anti-Santa revisionist, I guess my Santa is a revisionist, so I don't have a leg to stand on. So, bravo.
0: More of that Coca-Cola, polar bear bullshit. Bullshit. For me, the the, the horror element of that is Santa watching Fox News and, like... most Americans, you know, (laughs) the graying American who just watches 20 hours of Fox News a day and (laughs) their mind starts to melt.
1: This is a first draft, and I leave it up to you, my friends, and you, our legion of listeners, (laughs) to take it to new and exciting places and open up the possibilities. I also wrote this just before the podcast. I suppose that goes without saying. Send It Back, by L. Ryan Jirasi. I found it at the antique store and immediately thought of you, Aunt Sarah said, beaming. She was the kind of person who kept her eyes peeled all year for the perfect gifts. I stared at the small metal object, puzzled. It was round yet square, smooth but delicately filigreed, clean and somehow filthy. It shined bronze in the light from the Christmas candles, and yet was covered all over in a grime, deep-set. It's amazing! I fibbed. Thank you! We hugged, and in the blink of an eye Christmas was over. The next few days passed in a turkey haze, but all the while a creeping dread rose up in me. I couldn't explain it, but it was like the moment you realize you forgot to pay your credit card, as if all the floorward-facing parts of you were covered in ice, a frosty rhyme sucking all the joy away. I flew home, and the feelings only got worse. I could not figure out what caused it, but I did know that looking at that grungy square ball just made it worse, so I shoved it in a drawer and tried to forget it. It was only a night or two later, though, that I was reminded, as I tossed and turned. I was brought up sharp by the sound of a clanking bounce, followed by a grinding roll. The ball caught the morbid sodium light as it eased to a stop near the head of my bed, As I reached down to swat it away, that point of yellow light jumped up and split in two, and I was staring down the barrel of a leering grin, so ghoulish that the ice came back and shrouded me all over. It was gone, and the ice melted, leaving my shirt and sheets coldly soaked. "'You can't get rid of it,' my mom said over the phone aghast. "'You know how much that means to Sarah.' "'Can we return it and just not tell her?' "'That antique store doesn't take returns.' No returns. Yeah, right. I threw the ball cube out the window, and of course it showed up on my pillow. I threw it into a fire, but it didn't burn up. It was like a bad sweater. All I could do was stick it in the drawer and wait for it to turn up at random, mostly at night. Mostly while I was trying to sleep. Bouncing out, rolling over, and producing the apparition, which only stared at me with its yellow eyes and sunken, washed-out face. Why was it so crazy about watching me sleep? Was it some kind of dream eater? Sometimes it made a rasping hiss as it breathed in and out. And that just kept me more awake, so it couldn't have been a dream eater. I managed to get the stupid box open, but all I found was a tooth in there, and the DNA test came back as mostly Dutch, so no clues there. You know what? I'm glad I never gave a gift to Aunt Sarah. This is horseshit. Even with all the guilt-tripping my mom always gave me, I mean, geez, it's not like she's my godmother or anything. Wait, is she? Whatever. She gave me a ghost for Christmas, and I can't send it back. Screw this. So I wrote the first half of that story... Yesterday, when it was, like, obviously trying to be genuinely spooky, and I wrote the second half today when I just said, basically, screw it.
0: Well, I think you're you're actually landed on a real holiday horror. <laughs> the which, terrible
1: gift that you can't return. A
0: terrible gift, the awkward uh relationship, you know, with the aunts who don't know you but get you something. Like Ralphie's pink bunny suit. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like that I, that's a real thing you're hooked into there. That's very funny,
2: you, I liked it. I
1: think you can uh expand it and enrich the connection between Gift and if you felt like it. But it was a mere ghost of an idea. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I was going to write a Christmas story, and it was going to be about an elf that leaves Santa to join Krampus, and I only had a title, and it was Our Bodies, Our Elves, but uh, I never really got around to it. So I'm reading The Kit Bag by Algernon Blackwood, way back from 1908, Pall Mall Magazine. When the words, not guilty, sounded through the crowded courtroom that dark December afternoon, Arthur Wilbraham, the great criminal KC and leader for the triumphant defense, was represented by his junior, but Johnson, his private secretary, carried the verdict across to the chambers like lightning. "It's what we expected, I think," said the barrister without emotion, "and personally I am glad the case is over." There was no particular sign of pleasure that his defence of john Turk the murderer on a plea of insanity had been successful, for no doubt he felt, as everybody who had watched the face felt, that no man had better deserved the gallows. "I'm glad too," said Johnson. He had sat in his court for ten days watching the face of the man who had carried out with callous detail one of the most brutal and cold blooded murders of recent years the council glanced up at his secretary they were more than employer and employed for family and other reasons they were friends uh, i remember yes he said with a kind smile and you want to get away for christmas you're going to skate and ski in the alps aren't you if i was your age i'd come with you johnson laughed shortly he was a young man of twenty-six with a delicate face like a girl's i can catch the morning boat now he said but that's not the reason i'm glad the trial's over I'm glad it's over because i've seen the last of that man's dreadful face it positively haunted me that white skin with the black hair brushed low over the forehead it's a thing i shall never forget and that description of the way he dismembered the body was crammed and packed with lime into that don't dwell on it my dear fellow interrupted the other looking at him curiously out of his keen eyes don't think about it such pictures have a trick of coming back when one least wants them he paused for a moment "'Now go,' he added presently, "'and enjoy your holiday. "'I shall want all your energy for my parliamentary work when you get back, "'and don't break your neck skiing.' "'Johnson shook hands and took his leave, and the door he turned suddenly. "'I knew there was something I wanted to ask you. "'He said, would you mind lending me one of your kit bags? "'It's, it's too late to get one tonight, and I leave in the morning before the shops are open. "'Of course, I'll send Henry over with it to your rooms. "'You shall have it the moment I get home.' I promise to take great care of it," said Johnson gratefully, delighted to think that within thirty hours he'd be nearing the brilliant sunshine of the High Alps in winter. The thought of that criminal court was like an evil dream in his mind. He dined at his club and went on to Bloomsbury, where he occupied the top floor in one of those old gaunt houses in which the rooms are large and lofty. The floor below his own was vacant and unfurnished, and below that were other lodgers whom he did not know. It was cheerless, and he looked forward heartily to a change. The night was even more cheerless, it was miserable, and few people were about. A cold, sleety rain was driving down the street before the keenest east wind he'd ever felt. It howled dismally among the big, gloomy houses of the great squares, and when he reached his rooms he heard it whistling and shouting over the world of black roofs beyond his windows. In the hall he met his landlady, sharing a candle from the drafts with her thin hand. "'This come by a man from Mr. Wilbrom, sir.' "'She pointed to what was evidently the kit-bag, "'and Johnson thanked her and took it upstairs with him. "'I shall be going abroad in the morning for ten days, Mrs. Monks,' he said. "'I'll leave an address for letters.' "'And I hope you'll have a merry Christmas, sir,' she said in a raucous, wheezy voice "'that suggested spirits, and better weather than this.' "'I hope so, too,' replied her lodger, shuddering a little "'as the wind went roaring down the street outside. "'When he got upstairs,' He heard the sleet volleying against the window panes, he put his kettle on to make a cup of hot coffee, and then set about putting a few things in order for his absence. And now I must pack, such as my packing is, he laughed to himself, and set to work at once. He liked the packing, for it brought the snow mountain so vividly before him, and made him forget the unpleasant scenes of the past ten days. Besides, it was not elaborate in nature. His friend had lent him the very thing, stout canvas kit bag, sack-shaped, with holes around the neck for the brass bar and padlock. It's a bit shapeless, true, and not much to look at, but its capacity was unlimited, and there was no need to pack carefully. He shoved in his waterproof coat, his fur cap and gloves, his skates and climbing boots, his sweaters, snow boots, and ear caps, and then, on top of these, he piled his woolen shirts and underwears, thick socks, putties, and knickerbockers. The dress suit came next, in case the hotel people dressed for dinner, and then, thinking of the best way to pack his white shirts, he paused for a moment to reflect. "'It's the worst of these kit bags,' he mused vaguely, "'standing in the centre of the sitting room "'where he had come to fetch some string. "'It was after ten o'clock. "'A furious gust of wind rattled the windows "'as though to hurry him up, "'and he thought with pity of the poor Londoners "'whose Christmases would be spent in such a climate, "'whilst he was skimming over snow slopes "'in a bright sunshine, "'dancing in the evening with rosy-cheeked girls.' Ah, that reminded him he must put in his dancing pumps and evening socks. He crossed over from his sitting room to the cupboard on the landing where he kept his linen. And as he did so, he heard someone come up the stairs. He stood still a moment on the landing to listen. It was Mrs. Monk's step, he thought. She must be coming up at the last post. But then the steps ceased suddenly, and he heard no more. They were at least two flights down, and he came to the conclusion they were too heavy to be those of his bibulous landlady. No doubt they belonged to a late lodger who had mistaken his floor. He went into his bedroom and packed his pumps and dress shirts as best he could. The kit bag by this time was two-thirds full, and stood upright on its own base like a sack of flour. For the first time he noticed that it was old and dirty, canvas faded and worn, that it had obviously been subjected to rather rough treatment. It was not a very nice bag to have sent him, certainly not a new one, or one that his chief valued. He gave the matter a passing thought and went on with his packing. Once or twice, however, he caught himself wondering who it could have been wandering down below, for Mrs. Monks had not come up with letters, and the floor was empty and unfurnished. From time to time, moreover, he was almost certain he heard a soft tread of someone padding about over the bare boards, cautiously, stealthily, as silently as possible, and further that the sounds had been lately coming distinctly nearer. For the first time in his life, he began to feel a little creepy. Then, as though to emphasize this feeling, an odd thing happened. As he left the bedroom, having just packed his recalcitrant white shirts, he noticed that the top of the kit bag lopped over towards him with an extraordinary resemblance to a human face. The canvas fell into a fold like a nose and forehead, and the brass rings for the padlock just filled the position of the eyes. A shadow, or was it a travel stain, for he could not tell exactly, looked like hair it gave him rather a turn for it was so absurdly so outrageously like the face of john turk the murderer he laughed and went into the front room where the light was stronger that horrid case is caught on my mind he thought i shall be glad of a change of scene and air in the sitting room however he was not pleased to hear again that stealthy tread upon the stairs and to realize that it was much closer than before as well as unmistakably real and this time he got up and went out to see who it could be creeping about on the upper staircase at so late an hour. But the sound ceased. There was no one visible on the stairs. He went to the floor below, not without trepidation, and turned on the electric light to make sure that no one was hiding in the empty rooms of the unoccupied suite. There was not a stick of furniture large enough to hide a dog. Then he called over the banisters to Mrs. Monks, but there was no answer, and his voice echoed down into the dark vault of the house and was lost in the roar of the gale that howled outside. Everyone was in bed and asleep, everyone except himself, and the owner of the soft and stealthy tread. "'My absurd imagination, I suppose,' he thought. It must have been the wind, after all, although it seemed so very real and close, I thought. He went back to his packing. It was by this time getting on towards midnight. He drank his coffee up and lit another pipe, the last, before turning in. It's difficult to say exactly at what point fear begins, when the causes of that fear are not plainly before the eyes impressions gather on the surface of the mind film by film as ice gathers upon the surface of still water, but often so lightly that they claim no definite recognition from the consciousness. Then a point is reached where the accumulated impressions become a definite emotion and the mind realizes that something has happened. With something of a start Johnson suddenly recognized that he felt nervous, oddly nervous, also that for some time past the causes of this feeling had been gathering slowly in his mind, but that he had only just reached the point where he was forced to acknowledge them. It was a singular and curious malaise that had come over him, and he hardly knew what to make of it. He felt as though if he were doing something that was strongly objected to by another person, another person, moreover, who had some right to object. It was a most disturbing and disagreeable feeling, not unlike the persistent promptings of conscience almost, in fact, as if he were doing something he knew to be wrong. Yet, though he searched vigorously and honestly in his mind, he could nowhere lay his finger upon the secret of this growing uneasiness, and it perplexed him. More, it distressed and frightened him. "'Pure nerves, I suppose,' he said aloud with a forced laugh. "'Mountain air will cure all that,' Ah, he added, still speaking to himself. "'That reminds me. My snow-glasses.' He was standing by the door of the bedroom during the brief soliloquy, and as he passed quickly towards the sitting room to fetch them from the cupboard, he saw out of the corner of his eye the indistinct outline of a figure standing on the stairs, a few feet from the top. It was someone in a stooping position, with one hand on the banisters and the face peering up towards the landing, and at the same moment he heard a shuffling footstep. The person who had been creeping about below all this time had at last come up to his own floor. Who in the world could it be? And what in the name of heaven did he want? Johnson caught his breath sharply and stood stock still. Then, after a few seconds' hesitation, he found his courage and turned to investigate. The stairs he saw to his utter amazement were empty. There was no one. He felt a series of cold shivers run over him, and something about the muscles of his legs gave a little and grew weak. For the space of several minutes he peered steadily into the shadows that congregated about the top of the staircase where he had seen the figure, and then he walked fast—almost ran, in fact, into the light of the front room. But hardly had he passed inside the doorway when he heard someone coming up the stairs behind him with a quick bound and go swiftly into his bedroom. It was a heavy but at the same time a stealthy footstep, the tread of somebody who did not wish to be seen. And it was at this precise moment that the nervousness he had hitherto experienced leapt the boundary line and entered the state of fear, almost of acute, unreasoning fear. Before it turned into terror, there was a further boundary to cross, and beyond that, again, lay the region of pure horror. Johnson's position was an unenviable one. "'By Jove, that was someone on the stairs, then,' he muttered, his flesh crawling all over. "'And whoever it was has gone into my bedroom.' His delicate, pale face turned absolutely white, and for some minutes he hardly knew what to think or do. Then he realized intuitively that delay only set a premium upon fear, and he crossed the landing boldly and went straight into the other room, where, a few seconds before, the steps had disappeared. "'Who's there? Is that you, Mrs. Monks?' he called aloud as he went, and heard the first half of his words echo down the empty stairs, while the second half fell dead against the curtains in a room that apparently held no other human figure than his own. "'Who's there?' he called again, in a voice unnecessarily loud that had only just held firm. "'What do you want here?' The curtains swayed very slightly, and, as he saw it, his heart felt as if it almost missed a beat. Yet he dashed forward and drew them aside with a rush. A window streaming with rain was all that met his gaze. He continued his search, but in vain. The cupboards held nothing but rows of clothes hanging motionless, and under the bed there was no sign of anyone hiding.' He stepped backwards into the middle of the room, and as he did so, something all but tripped him up. Turning with a sudden spring of alarm, he saw the kit bag. Odd, he thought, that's not where I left it. A few moments before, it had surely been on his right between the bed and the bath. He did not remember having moved it. was very curious. What in the world was the matter with everything? Were all his senses gone queer? A terrific gust of wind tore at the windows, dashing the sleet against the glass with the force of a small gunshot, and then fled away howling dismally over the waste of Bloomsbury roofs. A sudden vision of the channel next day rose in his mind and recalled him sharply to realities. "'There's no one here at any rate, that's quite clear,' he exclaimed aloud, yet At the time he uttered them, he knew perfectly well that his words were not true, and that he did not believe them himself. He felt exactly as though someone was hiding close about him, watching all his movements, trying to hinder his packing in some way. And two of my senses, he added, keeping up the pretense, have played me the most absurd tricks. The steps I heard and the figure I saw were both entirely imaginary. He went back to the front room, poked the fire into a blaze, and sat down before it to think. What impressed him more than anything else was the fact that the kit-bag was no longer where he had left it. It had been dragged nearer to the door. What happened afterwards that night happened, of course, to a man already excited by fear, and was perceived by a mind that had not the full and proper control, therefore, of the senses. Outwardly, Johnson remained calm and master of himself to the end, Pretending to the very last that everything he witnessed had a natural explanation, or was merely delusions of his tired nerves, but inwardly in his very heart he knew all along that someone had been hiding downstairs in the empty suite when he came in, that this person had watched his opportunity and then stealthily made his way up to the bedroom, and that all he saw and heard afterwards, from the moving of the kit bag to, well, to other things this story has to tell, were caused directly by the presence of this invisible person. And it was here, just when he most desired to keep his mind and thoughts controlled, that the vivid pictures received day after day upon his mental plates, exposed in the courtroom of the old Bailey, came strongly to light and developed themselves in the dark room of his inner vision. Unpleasant, haunting memories have a way of coming to life again, just when the mind least desires them. In the silent watches of the night, on sleepless pillows, during the lonely hours spent by sick and dying beds— And so, in the same way, Johnson saw nothing but the dreadful face of John Turk, the murderer, lowering at him from every corner of his mental field of vision. The white skin, the evil eyes, the fringe of black hair low over the forehead, all the pictures of those ten days in court crowded back into his mind unbidden and very vivid. "'This is all rubbish and nerves,' he exclaimed at length, springing with sudden energy from his chair. "'I shall finish my packing and go to bed. I'm overwrought, overtired.' No doubt, at this rate, I shall hear steps and things all night. But his face was deadly white all the same. He snatched up his field glasses and walked across to the bedroom, humming a music hall song as he went, a trifle too loud to be natural. And the instant he crossed the threshold and stood within the room, something turned cold about his heart, and he felt that every hair on his head stood up. The kit bag lay close in front of him, several feet nearer to the door than he had left it, and just over its crumpled top he saw a head and face slowly sinking down out of sight, as though someone were crouching behind it to hide. And at the same moment a sound, like a long-drawn sigh, was distinctly audible in the still air about him between gusts of the storm outside. Johnson had more courage and willpower than the girlish indecision of his face indicated, but at first such a wave of terror came over him, that for some seconds he could do nothing but stand and stare. A violent trembling ran down his back and legs, and he was conscious of a foolish, almost hysterical impulse to scream aloud. That sigh seemed in his very ear, and the air still quivered with it. It was unmistakably a human sigh. "'Who's there?' he said at length, finding his voice, but, though he meant to speak with loud decision, the tones came out instead in a faint whisper, for he had partly lost the control of his tongue and lips. He stepped forward so that he could see all around and over the kit bag. Of course, there was nothing there, nothing but the faded carpet and the bulging canvas sides. He put out his hands and threw open the mouth of the sack, where it had fallen over, being only three parts full. And then he saw for the first time that round the inside, some six inches from the top, there ran a broad smear of dull crimson. It was an old and faded blood stain. He uttered a scream and drew back his hands as if they had been burnt, at the same moment, the kit bag gave a faint but unmistakable lurch towards the door. Johnson collapsed backward, searching with his hands for the support of something solid, and the door, being further behind him than he'd realized, received his way just in time to prevent his falling, and shut too, with a resounding bang. At the same moment, the swinging of his left arm accidentally touched the electric switch, and the light in the room went out. It was an awkward and disagreeable predicament, and if Johnson had not been possessed of real pluck, he might have done all manner of foolish things. As it was, however, he pulled himself together and groped furiously for the little brass knob to turn the light on again, but the rapid closing of the door had set the coats hanging on it, swinging, and his fingers became entangled in a confusion of sleeves and pockets, so that it was some moments before he found the switch. And in those moments of bewilderment and terror, two things happened that sent him beyond recall, over the boundary, into that region of genuine horror. He distinctly heard the kit bag shuffling heavily across the floor in jerks, and close in front of his face sounded once again the sigh of a human being in his anguished efforts to find the brass button on the wall he nearly scraped the nails from his fingers but even then in those frenzied moments of alarm so swift and alert are the impressions of a mind keyed up by a vivid emotion he had time to realize that he dreaded the return of the light and that it might be better for him to stay hidden in the merciful screen of darkness it was but the impulse of a moment however and before he had time to act upon it he had yielded automatically to the original desire and the room was flooded again with light but the second instinct had been right It would have been better for him to have stayed in the shelter of the kind darkness, for there, close before him, bending over the half-packed kit-bag, clear as life in the merciless glare of the electric light, stood the figure of John Turk, the murderer. Not three feet from him the man stood, the fringe of black hair marked plainly against the pallor of the forehead, the whole horrible presentment of the scoundrel, as vivid as he had seen him day after day in the old bailey, when he stood there in the dock cynical and callous under the very shadow of the gallows." In a flash, Johnson realized what it all meant. The dirty and much-used bag, the smear of crimson within the top, the dreadful stretched condition of the bulging sides. He remembered how the victim's body had been stuffed into a canvas bag for burial. The ghastly, dismembered fragments forced with lime into this very bag, and the bag itself produced his evidence. It all came back to him as clear as day. Very softly and stealthily, his hand groped behind him for the handle of the door, but before he could actually turn it, The very thing that he most of all dreaded came about, and John Turk lifted his devil's face and looked at him. At the same moment, that heavy sigh passed through the air of the room, formulated somehow into the words, It's my bag, and I want it. Johnson just remembered clawing the door open and then falling in a heap upon the floor of the landing, as he tried frantically to make his way into the front room. "'He remained unconscious for a long time, "'and it was still dark when he opened his eyes "'and realized that he was lying stiff and bruised on the cold boards. "'Then the memory of what he had seen rushed back into his mind, "'and he promptly fainted again. "'When he woke the second time, "'the wintry dawn was just beginning to peep in at the windows, "'painting the stairs a cheerless, dismal gray, "'and he managed to crawl into the front room "'and cover himself with an overcoat in the armchair, "'where, at length, he fell asleep. "'A great clamor woke him. "'He recognized Mrs. Monk's voice,' "'loud and voluble. "'What? "'You ain't been to bed, sir? "'Are you ill, or has anything happened? "'And there's an urgent gentleman to see you, though it ain't seven o'clock yet, and—' "'Who is it?' he stammered. "'I'm all right, thanks. "'Fell asleep in my chair, I suppose. "'Someone from Mr. Wibram's, and—' "'He says he ought to see you quick before you go abroad, and I told him—' "'Show him up, please, at once,' said Johnson, whose head was whirling, and his mind was still full of dreadful visions. Mr. Wilbraham's man came in with many apologies, and he explained briefly and quickly that an absurd mistake had been made and that the wrong bag had been sent over the night before. Enbury somehow got hold of the one that came over from the courtroom, and Mr. Wilbraham only discovered it when he saw his own lying in his room and asked why it had not gone to you, the man said. "'Oh,' said Johnson, stupidly, "'and he must have brought you the one from the murder case instead, sir, I'm afraid.' The man continued without the ghost of an expression on his face. The one John Turk packed the dead body in. Mr Wilbram's awful upset about it, sir. He told me to come over first thing this morning with the right one as you were leaving by the boat. He pointed to a clean looking kit bag on the floor, which he had just brought, and I was to bring the other one back, sir, he added casually. For some minutes Johnson could not find his voice. At last he pointed in the direction of his bedroom. Uh, "'Perhaps you would kindly unpack it for me. "'Just empty the things out on the floor.' "'The man disappeared into the room and was gone for five minutes. "'Johnson heard the shifting to and fro of the bag "'and the rattle of the skates and boots being unpacked. "'Thank you, sir,' the man said, returning with the bag folded over his arm. "'And can I do anything more to help you, sir?' "'What is it?' asked Johnson, seeing that he still had something he wished to say. "'The man shuffled and looked mysterious.' Pardon, sir, but knowing your interest in the Turk case, I thought you'd maybe like to know what's happened. Yes. John Turk, he killed himself last night with poison, immediately on getting his release, and he he left a note for Mr. Wilbraham saying he'd much be obliged if they'd have him put away, same as the woman he murdered, in the old kit bag. What time did he do it, asked Johnson? Ten o'clock last night, sir, the warder says.
1: That was a short excerpt of The Bloody Sack <laughs> by Algernon Blackwood. <laughs>
0: Sorry, I tried to find a short one. You know, it's interesting because Algernon Blackwood is one of the greats and one of the pioneers of the ghost story, uh, and to look back on that was sort of a modern sensibility. You know, I almost wish, instead of it being a ghost that had sort of crept into his room and crawled into the bag if it, he had stowed away like busted out of the prison like inside the evidence bag or something. Huh. Yeah.
1: It does remind me of this one part that I really love in uh, Christmas Carol when Marley first shows up mm-hmm. and he climbs all the way from the wine cellar all the way up to Scrooge's chambers he like a couple of floors up so we can hear the doors closing like in the basement mm-hmm. and then on the stairs and then the downstairs door and then on the upstairs and then the upstairs door Look
0: forward to the Six Demon Bag full cast recording of (laughs) Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. The flame of another year sputters to its end. We will see you on the other side of the dark. The Six Demon Bag wishes you a good night and a happy new year.
2: Do you want me to read something else? I got read something. Heavens,
1: else. no. <laughs> <laughs>